0: The news continues, so let's hand it over to Laura Coates and CNN Tonight. Laura.
1: Thanks, John Berman. Nice to see you, as always, and thank you so much. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. There's what Russia says, and then there's what Russia does, according to the White House. And tonight, there are new assessments from high up that Putin's trying to play the West for fools. According to a senior U.S. official, there is, quote, every indication, unquote, that Russia is privately mobilizing for war while, of course, publicly offering to talk. This official tells CNN the Russian claims of pulling forces back from Ukraine and de-escalating, well, they're all false, they say, when in fact Putin's amassed approximately 7,000 more troops at Ukraine's borders in just recent days. These new buildup estimates would now place the number of Russian forces that are circling around Ukraine at around 157,000. President Biden cited a 150,000 estimate just yesterday in his televised address. So all those videos put out by Russia's Ministry of Defense of tanks leaving Crimea and elsewhere, all that talk of troops allegedly returning to home bases. I gotta ask, was that part of a choreographed scheme by the Kremlin to make it look like Moscow's de-escalating when in fact it's doing the opposite? Because there are new satellite images that show a new bridge being built across a Key River in Belarus, less than four miles, I might add, from the Ukrainian border, along with a new road construction. Sources believe the roads and bridge could be used by Russian forces currently in Belarus to drive to the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. Belarus is Russia's closest international ally in the standoff. The senior Biden administration official warns to expect more false reports from Russia's state media over the few coming days. And also to watch out for Putin's public openness to diplomacy because this official suggests that it's all perhaps a guise. But they do say the U.S. will still continue to pursue diplomacy over the coming days. So what kind of game exactly might Putin be playing? Does he realize, of course, it's the age of satellite technology where cameras and the world are watching and someone could be on to it? Or does he even care? Frankly, there are a lot of unanswered questions. It's impossible, as you know, to assess what exactly Putin wants. But both NATO and President Biden say the U.S. and allies are prepared And part of that preparation is NATO increasing its presence in Eastern Europe to bolster allies that are neighboring Ukraine, of course, with the help of U.S. forces. More are arriving in Poland, and that's where our Nick Payton Walsh is tonight, near that very border with Ukraine. Nick, I'm glad you're there. What are you seeing on the ground? And really, my first question, above all else... You know, is is it happening or isn't it? There is this sort of tale of two countries and what's being told. What are you seeing?
2: Well, certainly in terms of what the signals are of what's been happening around Ukraine on its eastern flank, where Russian troops are, it is very hard to divine precisely whether we're beginning to see a de-escalation or, as we heard very emphatically from the White House, from the US Secretary of State, from UK officials, from the NATO Secretary General, that we are in fact seeing a slow, continued mobilisation. You mentioned the figures there, rising by 7,000, up from the 150,000 President Joe Biden mentioned yesterday. It may be that it takes a number of days for President Putin's suggestion of withdrawal to come into effect, but you have to remember but over the past 10, 20 years, we've seen in other conflicts Russia talking peace while advancing its military position on the ground. That may be what we're seeing here, and it's consistent with the Russian idea of kind of maskarovka, of hiding what your true intentions are. Here, though, in Poland, on the other western side of Ukraine today... At the airport not far from where I'm standing in Jeshov we saw hundreds of uh, US troops coming in from the 82nd Airborne from Fort Bragg. Uh, large passenger aircraft, Black Hawks in accompaniment to Cessna Light aircraft, it seemed, bringing in some of the top brass trucks pallets, a lot of equipment being moved in. This is no small measure we're seeing here. It is essentially, we're told, a just-in-case measure, in case they are required to help uh, US citizens inside of Ukraine get out of that country if there is a conflict. But you can see Resources here that seem to suggest the potential for a wider mission as well. We saw a tent encampment where the 82nd uh, were essentially going to live, but also nearby larger white tents being erected too, perhaps for some uh, more extensive operation here. This is not symbolic. Clearly, the strength of forces here shows they feel they may have to actually do something at some point in the weeks ahead, although I'm sure the abiding sentiment is they'd much rather find themselves bored and cold under canvas here doing little. But it is stark, frankly, Laura, to having seen over the years NATO practicing drills, military maneuvers like this uh, because of their concerns on the eastern flank since Russia moved into Crimea in 2014, to see it now actually occur in reality on the ground here uh, because of a perceived actual threat startling in Europe 2022, Laura.
1: Absolutely. Nick, Peyton Walsh, thank you so much for your excellent reporting as always. And As he said, I mean, there's news of yet another 7,000 Russian troops that are arriving at the Ukrainian border. And this comes as a Ukrainian intelligence report obtained exclusively by CNN says the number of Russian forces remain still insufficient for a full-scale invasion. Let's discuss now the military options that Vladimir Putin has with retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. Colonel, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here to help us try to understand this. And the initial question, of course, for everyone, as Nick was talking about, look, is Putin the great provocateur or is this gamesmanship that puts us all at the brink? (laughs)
0: Yeah, without question, it's gamesmanship, uh, but with very decidedly uh, deadly potential consequences. And look, there's something we got to understand right up front, and it's a stone cold reality that everybody needs to come to grips with, especially in Washington, and that is that Ukraine does not matter to American national security but avoiding nuclear war with Russia does. And that's the reason why you've seen President Biden absolutely take off the table. There's no possibility he's going to send U.S. troops in to fight Russia on behalf of Ukraine. NATO has said that they're not going. to. So it's clear that if there's an invasion, Ukraine is on their own. Now, if we understand that, then we have to come to the, ask the question, if Ukraine membership in NATO is what's absolutely driving Putin, and it is, he's been saying that literally since 2007, then we have to say, why should we keep saying the door's going to be open when we are never going to allow Ukraine in NATO? There's no way they would come in. We don't even want them in. But is it- so let's don't keep that door open if it's going to get Ukraine invaded.
1: I understand that, but isn't that part of the gamesmanship that Putin may be playing, right? The idea that if if Ukraine is always perceived as a permanent liability where it triggers the affirmative obligation to then act and support as if they're NATO ally, then it's in Putin's interest to continue the gamesmanship, to put the constant threat as sort of damocles over them. But, but- is that, is that part of the, the thought here, or is it also equal parts perhaps emotional? I mean, we can't always read into the tea leaves, but is Putin saying, no, the reason is also Ukraine should belong to me?
0: Well, he actually doesn't want it to belong to him. He just wants to make sure it doesn't belong to NATO, which is why hmm. just a couple of days ago when the uh, Ukrainian ambassador just floated the idea that, well, maybe we should take our, our request for NATO off the table, uh, and then Zelensky actually echoed it some number of hours later. The, the Kremlin immediately jumped on that and said, yes, that is a great idea. That could definitely de-escalate things and something we would like to proceed and talk about.
1: Let me ask you, though, on de-escalation how are we supposed to know? I mean, I I know not me sitting here and you sitting here at this table, but is there some sort of warning and the idea of how will the United States know that we are no longer in the reactive? Are we sitting ducks waiting for every sort of chess piece to be made by Putin? Are we going to have some understanding of, do they have everything in place to accomplish this? I mean, the the troop numbers still very substantial. Is it enough?
0: Yeah, I'm telling you, as one who has engaged in direct combat with, with tanks and armored vehicles, they absolutely have enough combat power to slice Ukraine in half and do whatever they want to, really? especially in the eastern part. There is no doubt. It is, and Of course, it's growing by the day. So we have to take these, these dispositions very seriously. And to your point earlier about, you know, see he, he's Putin saying one thing, but then right. he's doing another. We have to look at what he's doing. Forget about what he's saying. We have to look at the type of forces, their physical location, and the fact that they are ready for action. And and I have been in that situation before. And once you get ready for action, it's hard to pull it back down, which is why we need to de-escalate the situation and just acknowledge reality and take NATO membership off the table for Ukraine.
1: But Let me ask, I mean, at what cost to Russia? I mean, the idea of being able to accomplish, as you say, it in half— it feels as though you're talking about perhaps a maybe of a kamikaze type of situation here. Do they have the ability to pull it off and at no great risk or cost to Russia? Because obviously, I'm sure Putin is thinking about the ability to do it versus what cost it would be in the long run. And of course, we know that you have American troops at least in position to actually bolster the NATO allies. So, what is the cost to Russia if they do do this?
0: Yeah, well, I'm telling you, all these troops that are that are in Poland and elsewhere. Russia is not even threatening to do anything into NATO. So those troops have no impact on Putin's calculation here. They're literally inconsequential. But the other thing that we like to talk about is all these, you know, catastrophic sanctions and everything else, Mm -hmm. all this pain it would cause. Well, the problem is that's a double-edged sword. And I can assure you there's many countries in Europe, Germany being one of the the leading ones, that are not excited about that because it will harm their economy. I mean, 50 percent of their daily gas supplies come from Russia. And if Russia decides to turn it off because they get sanctioned, what's Germany going to do? It's going to decimate their uh, economic output because they literally won't have enough uh, gas to keep the electricity on. So we have to be careful that we don't hurt our own self over something that we're never going to do anyway. We are never going to bring NATO, uh, Ukraine into NATO.
1: So in that respect, I mean, the fact that you, you heard just yesterday, I mean, President Biden was speaking, but he was speaking as commander in chief at this point in time, also top diplomat in many respects. Is the White House doing what they need to do, taking consideration what you've just articulated, the idea of it being a fool's errand to have them enter into NATO? Or are they doing enough or the right course of action?
0: I, I don't think so. Uh, I I think that we are stuck in a Cold War mentality where we get to call all the shots, as we have since 1991, Mm. and the the balance of power has now come back to something near equilibrium. We don't have the luxury to just tell Russia what we're going to do anymore, and if we keep trying to push that line, we're going to get Ukraine invaded unnecessarily. Because this can be pulled down and, and and not even happen, or at least a good chance for it not to happen. But if we press forward this and just say, no, we're not gonna let Putin tell us what to do, most likely Ukraine is gonna pay in blood for that decision.
1: I mean, this can never be just about chest beating, right? This can't be about bravado. There's so many things at stake and it this should really be. really be a humanitarian. <laughs> it shouldn't be, right? But we also know the history of the world. Thank you so Indeed. much, Lieutenant Colonel. Nice talking to My you. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: And I'm glad that you were here. Up ahead, prosecutors presented new evidence today in the federal hate crimes trial for the killers of Ahmad Arbery, the black man trapped and murdered while just jogging in Georgia. Key evidence, past racist text messages and social media posts. But will a jury connect the dots in a way, in any way, to Arbery's murder? We'll show you what some of the, what the prosecution unearthed Up next. Federal prosecutors funded more damning evidence today to show that the three white men who killed Ahmaud Arbery did so because of racial animus. An FBI intelligence analyst led the jury through a litany, and I do mean a litany, of racist text messages and social media posts, particularly from two of them. And honestly, I'm going to be honest with you here, it's too sickening to read all of them and the vitriol. But this is just a sliver, so you can understand what the jury is hearing. In one text message by Travis McMichael, remember he's the one who actually shot Ahmaud Arbery, in a text he sent to a friend on why he liked his new job, he said it was because he didn't work with black people. Quote, they ruin everything. That's why I love what I do now. Not an N-word in sight unquote. In another instance, he responded to a video where a black man put barbecue sauce on a white man's head as a prank, responding, I'd kill that effing N-word. He repeatedly described black people as monkeys and savages, and even commented under a video of Black Lives Matter protests that he wished for a semi-automatic gun to shoot them. Meanwhile, his daddy shared racist memes, claiming in one of them that white Irish slaves were treated worse than any other race in the U.S., but that they aren't asking for handouts. Their accomplice, William Roddy Bryan, the neighbor you remember, he regularly used slurs and mocked Martin Luther King Day, at one point referencing it as a monkey parade. I want to bring in CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson, and I do repeat, that was but a sliver. Joey, um in the grand endeavor to pursue justice in the form of a hate crime they're off to a heck of a start from the prosecution do you think so
3: yeah without question Laura always good to see you and be with you look the bottom line here is that i know that you have to make the connection right between right. the prior comments and statements and beliefs and values of the defendants to this particular case but you know That, to your point, is a pretty good start when you're talking about the things that you believe. And so, yes, you can make the argument, as the defense is here, Laura, that, hey, my clients may have said these things in the past, they may have espoused all of these values, et cetera, but... Look the other way because that's not the basis or reason and that they charged and ran after and hunted down and shot and killed them on Aubrey. That had nothing to do with it. And so the defense is trying to disconnect the two and saying that the defendants had a good faith belief. They were protecting the neighborhood. They thought Amon Arby was doing something that was amiss or illegal. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the basis for what they're doing. But it's hard to make that argument when you read all the ugly things that you read, when it looks and sounds and quacks like a duck, war. What is it? A duck.
1: I got to tell you, look, I mean... You and I both know that it all comes down to the strength of a case, things that might seem extraordinarily the shock and awe for a jury. Sometimes they're the most unpredictable dozen of people you've ever seen in your life. And they don't always make the connection. Let's talk about that composition of the jury, though. I think it's important to show the audience about how it is comprised and the race of the different jurors that we, as we now know it. We you know, in the state trial, it was 11 white jurors, one black judge, three whites were alternates. And of course, a lot was made about the idea of would they be able to connect the dots? in light of the defense counsel statement in the homicide. At the federal trial, you have a more diverse, it seems, jury at pool here. Eight white people, three blacks, one Hispanic. In terms of how a jury might receive this information, Joey, what do you think is the way that these prosecutors have to approach the scenario? Because if you're talking about the element of having to prove the racial animus, it's not enough just to prove, for, for example, that somebody generally has these viewpoints. They've got to show that it was the reason why they acted. Will either or any of these three take the stand, you think, in defense of their actions? At least at the state trial, the shooter did.
3: Yeah, so excellent points, Laura, right? So to unpack that, number one, jurors, if you look at the state case where it was a lot less diverse, what did they do, right? In the deep south, they convicted. Now, we know the issues were different. It was not about race. It was about whether they killed Ahmaud Aubrey and whether or not they kidnapped and confined him and whether or not they engaged in those activities. Nothing relating to race. Right. You could make those inferences. This case is all about that. Now, with respect to a composition of the jury, you've tried a lot of cases successfully as the stellar prosecutor that you were. And you know, just like I know from the defense perspective, that you're picking people. And people, you know, you want to be fair-minded in the people you pick. You want them to be impartial. And there are some people who could be African American who may not espouse the same views as African Americans. That could be white jurors who are more sympathetic to African Americans, etc. So you have to evaluate the jury for who they are, not particularly what they look like. That's why we're here in the first place, you can argue. But I do think that the defendants have a lot of explaining to do. When you ask about the issue, will they testify? You have to look and evaluate why did you say those things in the past? And how can we believe as jurors that they're not connected to this case? And why don't they represent who you are? And when you look at the father and the son, you know and I know that you can make reasonable inferences from the evidence. No one's born a racist That is taught behavior. Tell me who you're eating dinner with. Tell me who's raising you. Tell me what they're talking to you about. And I'll tell you who you are because it's based on who you taught. So you can't tell me that the son believes all these things, but the father, oh, because his cell phone was encrypted and we don't have that much from him, maybe he believes something else. And so I think at the end of the day, they may very well testify because they have to tell that jury that you know what, what I did wasn't based on race, it was based on my good faith belief that he was doing something to the neighborhood. It's a very tough argument to make, Laura.
1: Well, you know, we know that impartiality is supposed to be the driving factor between, behind every juror. The idea of this is a high profile case, I can't believe that any of the jurors have not heard about this, but can they be impartial in the moment? And we know the realities of America and just human psyche. That impartiality might be infused in a very distinct way. We were talking about having people bring in views on race and racism. It has a way of impacting and influencing a jury. And I'll wonder how this comes out. And to that point, Joey, I'll leave it at this. That's one of the reasons the prosecution has called other people in the neighborhood to see, did anyone else view him as a threat? One neighbor, I understand, called a non-emergency number because they didn't perceive him as a threat. And then three others pursue, hunt, and chase him down. And what was said afterwards, Joey... We got to stay on this story and stay on this trial. It's always great to have you here in particular.
3: It's always good to be with you, Lauren. I'll just say this as we close. We're in 2022 and all of the things you started this segment with with respect to the thoughts and beliefs and values, it's really horrific to see and to think that in this day and age, there are people out there who believe this and talk about this and spread this. It's just very hard to sit here as you, I'm sure, and to just digest what was told to that jury horrible.
1: Not just for me, for everyone. I mean, right? I mean, I do you, don't you get the feeling there are moments when I think, you know, my great grandmother, God rest her soul, Josie, I could have these conversations with her and they'd be evergreen to what I'm experiencing right now and seeing. And the idea of even the idea of people chasing somebody because they're black, allegedly, because he committed a crime he did not commit. I mean, this is something that has such resonance for so many black people and brown people in this country. And I think these sort of echoes of the past, it's horrifying, but also the reason why federal hate crime legislation remains, because it's not just about the individual, it's about anyone at any time being vulnerable, whether it's race, religion, or other factors. Joey Jackson, this remains important. Thank you.
3: It does. Thank you, Laura, so much.
1: You know, one of the nation's largest airlines, well, they're growing quite tired of scenes like this. But would the proposed solution go too far? While some Republicans argue that it treats unruly passengers like terrorists, well, the debate about whether that's right or wrong, we're going to have that next. members of the self-proclaimed law and order party rushing to the defense of those who can't follow the rules on airplanes. But let's be clear these days that the friendly skies as they once were known, well, they've gone from this to this. Now, now. Yeah, that's a good fight. I mean, just this year, the FAA received 394 reports of unruly passengers. I remind you, I said this year, and it is only February, right? In most cases, the beefs were, well, they were over masks. That's got people from the CEO of Delta to the transportation secretary talking about adding those who get out of hand on a flight to the no-fly list. A group of Republican senators, well, they opposed that. And in a letter to the attorney general They said that that would equate Americans skeptical of mask rules to terrorists. Keep in mind, about one in five flight attendants say they were involved in a physical incident with a passenger just last year. Let's bring in two to discuss from different perspectives as well, security and political in different worlds, the Juliet Kayam and Scott yeah. Jennings. I gave you the Juliet Kayam, I gave you the Scott Jennings as well. I don't want to leave any of that off for both of you, but now you are both here. Let me begin with you, Juliet, because it's so important yeah. to lean on your expertise in particular on this issue and, and with Homeland Security related. What is your thought yeah. about the idea of equating people who are unruly based on the mask mandates, et cetera, with perceived yeah. terrorists? What's your thought? So unruly is a really nice way of putting
4: disruptive and dangerous. I mean, unruly makes them sound like they're playing their music too loud. What we're seeing in, in a lot of these instances is essentially criminal behavior and a, a a dangerous instrument that if things go wrong on an airplane, they actually can go terribly, terribly wrong. And so I just want to make it clear, the no-fly list is about disruptive or dangerous air, airport behavior. It, it, it started off or was triggered by, of course, the terrorist attacks of 9-11, but that's like acting like nothing has changed in terms of our threat environment for the last 20 years. Anyone in Homeland Security knows, you know, Homeland Security isn't about stopping, you know, 19 terrorists from getting on four airplanes anymore. It's about all the risks that Americans face, whether it's climate or or, or, or violent people on airplanes or a pandemic, and, and, and lowering that risk. So it would be totally appropriate to have a floor that simply says, if you do something disruptive like this, right? In other words, something of a magnet, of a of, of a degree, and we can define it that w- right. was disruptive, right? Yeah. Then you cannot fly on any airplane because the only remedy we have now is one airline takes them off their list or a criminal re- remedy. There has to be something in between, in between, to actually tell people you cannot behave this way. It will motivate others to behave better. So rowdy, I think, is just a, an easy way out for these Republicans uh, well, uh, to, uh, Juliet, to not support it.
1: I hear you. And on that point, you know, the idea of defining it, that sticks in my mind. Scott, and I want to invite you into the conversation because the first thought, and I'm playing devil's advocate here... The first thought is, well, how are maybe passengers or flight marshals or others to determine whether this is a passenger who is, as you know, the word unruly or somebody who could pose a threat to embolden others to then use a pretextual reason and lull people into a false sense of security? Do you see this, Scott, as a potential threat and the idea of saying they ought to be on the no-fly list in general, not just an airline specific, but you can't take to any skies?
5: Yeah, I, I'm, I am skeptical of this because I think there's a huge difference between people who put their hands on other people, commit violence. You know, some of the things flight attendants are reporting where people are actually getting physical with them, I absolutely think that would qualify you to be prosecuted and then put on a no-fly list. But when you start to then define down other interactions, such as a heated conversation or a misunderstanding that becomes a heated conversation, I, I worry that certain people Uh, you know, could be defined as, um, you know, no fly list worthy when it was nothing more than a heated interaction. So I think the definition would be critical. Now, I will tell you the way to end all of this and the way to make all of this go away is for the FAA to end the stupid mask mandate on airplanes right now. We do not need mask mandates on airplanes. It is completely unnecessary. You've got Democrat governors all over the country ending mask mandates. There's not a reason in this world we need them on airplanes you get on an airplane. I get on a lot of them. Most everybody on there is wearing a cloth mask, which, you know, now are pretty much called facial decorations or fashion statements. So you want to make this go away in the mask mandate and don't put in rules that could, you know, follow somebody around for the rest of their life when it may have right. been an overblown interaction.
1: Julia, is it a, is it a stupid mask mandate to have them on, on the planes? No. Obviously, it's the prerogative of the federal government. It's the FAA. It's under the president's purview. It's it's exactly. a- is it stupid? it's a rule
4: i mean and this is this is such a side ta- tangent to to the to the issue right it is a rule we can debate the rule like rational people you cannot debate it by getting on an airplane with the mask on because you wouldn't be allowed on without the mask on and then pretending all of a sudden that you view this as a as an impediment to your freedoms and so i wanted to say where we agree there there has to be a floor of which violent behavior um, unwillingness to put on, to follow the rules, to listen to flight attendants to, who, are, who are security officers, they're not cocktail waitresses, they are frontline security officers, uh, that if you don't listen to them, if you don't abide by the rules, uh, and you are violent or threatening or threaten uh, the airplane to the extent that in a lot of these cases, the airplanes are getting diverted, right? So that, that in and of itself is, is, a, is, a, is a dangerous thing in terms of moving airplanes from their flight plans. Uh, then we uh, we agree, right? In other words, you want the bar to be high enough to, to violence or threat of violence. But the, but the idea that. That these these guys who are threatening flight attendants get to have a heckler's veto over a, a federal mandate rule regarding masks on a highly in a highly regulated regulated industry is ridiculous. I'm not having this debate. I'm not going to have the masking debate. There and yet, yet Juliet, right? I want I, 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 I hear you. Too, excuse me. Debate.
1: Excuse me. I hear you on the debate you don't want to have, but I do in the interest of Jess, I see you nodding, Scott, and mm-hmm. thinking about that when it comes down to it, this is, in fact, the debate that's happening on Capitol Hill in some respects and in different governors' offices, not not mm-hmm. because it's about whether it's stupid or not, but the debate of, and I, I do agree, in the notion of, look, I'm not comfortable just saying, okay, let's avoid having to have a conversation about passengers who pose perhaps a deadly threat by just saying, get rid of the rule. That's like saying, let's stop having conversations about terrorism yeah. by just talking, just do away with the rule about taking your shoes off before you got an airplane. There are rules right. there, but Unfortunately, we're out of time, and we'll have to leave it there with me having the last word. Sorry, Scott Jennings. Thank you so much. great. Oh, okay. My, my you. smile, I hope, will be endearing enough to you, Scott. Call me later. Nice talking to you Got both, enough. Juliet we'll and, and Scott. Okay, please do so. I appreciate it. We turn now to another disturbing piece of video that we'll show you after the break. Speaking of fighting, how about two teens, this time fighting inside of a shopping mall? But the controversy starts when the police show up. Their response is raising questions of racial bias. I'll show you why next. What started as a scuffle between two teenage boys in a New Jersey mall has escalated to a much bigger outcry over race, even prompting comments from the Jersey governor. And it's not the teens facing backlash. Take a look at this video that was taken on Saturday. You see the black teen. CNN has learned that his first name is Kai, arguing with the white teen, whose name we have not confirmed. It goes from finger pointing to flying fists. But look what happens when police officers come to break up the fight. They toss the white teen to a nearby couch, but they seem to take a more aggressive action with respect to Kai, pitting him to the floor and straddling him. One officer appears to have her knee on his back. The Bridgewater police says it's investigating the incident, but in the meantime, both teams are speaking out.
3: And then the cops come over and they come tackle me and like put me in handcuffs and then just leave him by himself on the couch, free, just able to do anything. I was con- like confused, like why they saw me as a bad person, like I, me as a, like aggressor, the one that started everything, and they automatically assume.
1: And the white teen was also alarmed at the response, telling a TV station, quote, "'I knew it was wrong, and I knew there was going to be problems when they did that. They didn't go for me.'" She said, "'Stay put.'" That's all she said. I didn't understand why. I even offered to get handcuffed as well. CNN has not been able to speak to either of the teenagers or their parents. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy tweeted his he is deeply disturbed by what appears to be racially disparate treatment in this video. Well, my next guest leads racial justice training around the entire country for juvenile defenders, prosecutors and judges. Joining us now, Georgetown law professor Kristen Henning, author of the great, incredible new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. Kristen, I can't think of a more appropriate person to talk about this with. Professor, what's your reaction when you see that?
6: This is a video for anyone who does not believe that implicit racial bias exists. You've got two officers called to the scene, less than 20 seconds into a fight, they go straight to the black boy, right? And the assumption is he's the one who's out of of place. He's the one who's a threat. So my first reaction is indeed concern about racial bias. I'm also concerned about the ways in which we respond to adolescent behaviors with traditional law enforcement responses. Why are we taking this young boy down to the ground, putting a knee in his back and handcuffing him as opposed to just separating these two boys and de-escalating the situation? So there's so much to talk about with this video.
1: And of course, hearing the other boy in the video talking about the idea of him offering to be handcuffed too and not understanding. I mean, you've done a lot of research. He talks about Kai. This is the black teenager. He talks about being scared and you've done research and on the treatment of black children. What are the ramifications long term of what this looks like? I mean, this is quite scarring and traumatizing, not only for the black teen who was impacted, but for others who were looking on.
6: Absolutely. There is a growing body of research documenting the extraordinary psychological trauma to black and brown children who are the frequent targets of police stops, frisk, violence of this nature. You know, young people become depressed and fearful and anxious and hypervigilant, meaning that they're always on guard and not trusting others. And just as you said, Laura, you know, what's so powerful about this research is that it shows that the trauma occurs even when you're not the direct target. Just witnessing these types of incidents lead to the same traumatic effects, post-traumatic stress disorder, sleeplessness, you no know, other signs of depression so it's it really has a profound long-term consequences on, on on children who are observing especially black and brown children who know that they are disproportionately targeted
5: now
1: let's be clear and I know you know this and we're talking about this issue we don't have all the answers we have not interviewed every person this story is still developing and so I'm always reluctant to Put a stamp on what our opinions must be, but just watching it, it really dredges up so much of the research and exploration you have done so eloquently and well to talk about this issue even from a more removed perspective. Professor Kristen Henning, thank you so much. Thank you. And coming up, a remarkable story of a little girl who was found alive after vanishing more than two years ago. The clues that led investigators to a suspicious looking staircase, and who they found with the six-year-old? Look, a lot of questions remain in this case. Alaska next. A tip. A warrant and keen eyes by an officer in New York leads to the rescue of a six-year-old girl who was reported missing, get this, two years ago. She was found living under a staircase. There's still a lot of unknowns in this case. I mean, the Saugerties Police Department is still investigating. And officers say that young Paisley Schultes was removed from her parents' custody before she was reported missing. Officers visited the parents' home several times over the years, but they found no evidence of Paisley. But then this week, they got a tip, which led to a search warrant.
3: The detective said there was something odd about the stairs, just the way they were constructed, the way they felt when he was walking on them. Um, and he said he took a closer look at the stairs. And between two of the stair uh, there's a crack. He used a flashlight, looked in there, and he saw what he believed was a blanket um, at the bottom. So they used a halligan tool and they started removing the steps of the staircase. And sure and behold, they found a little pair of feet.
1: Wow, that's good police work. And the police believe that the mom and the girl had been staying at the home since they disappeared in 2019. They believe the staircase appeared to have been built for the purpose of hiding them both. Paisley's mother, father... And grandfather were arrested all three before a judge today. I want to turn now to Miguel Marquez, who is in Sargates, New York, for us tonight. Miguel, what a story. I mean, first, when people saw this headline, they probably thought, oh, my God, what are we talking about right now? But where is this little girl right now? Has she been released to a legal guardian? Who is caring for this little girl?
7: She is with her legal guardian. This was the person that was given custody of her two years ago. She never showed up there. So she's with her legal guardian now and her older sister. She's doing well. You know, police saying that uh, she, there was no sign of abuse with her, which is the good thing. The problem is, police also say, is that she, she wasn't able to go to school over the last two years, not even to a doctor. So it's not clear what that long-term trauma is going to be. Or, and,
1: and tell me a little bit about that. What was her reaction when police rescued her? I understand that there was something, some apprehension initially.
7: Yeah, I mean, look, she came out apparently, the police say that she was, she was calm at first and a little sheepish when they, when they, when they crawled out of that staircase. Uh, but then she became upset and, and fearful of what was going on. But they also, look, there's a lot of police around. They were, they were armed. They, they had uh, you know, lots of gear on. So that would probably upset any child. They were able to sort of calm her down and, and get her checked out. And she's in a much better place right now.
1: I understand also that at one point on their way to the police headquarters, they passed by a McDonald's and she somehow remembered at some point that perhaps she had eaten something like that before. And they went to the drive through with her to help make her feel more comfortable. I tell you, those golden arches, well, but yeah, I, she... I, I, that's it's unbelievable. She's a child. She's six years old. Remember, Miguel, where do things stand right now? Because, you know, there are so many questions left to be answered here. Where does the investigation stand right now? They've been charged.
7: Yeah. Th- look, this is a this is a custody case at, at the very core, and it's a very complicated one. It's across several jurisdictions. It's across a lot of time, uh, and there are several family members here that are involved. Uh, custodial interference is what they've all been charged with: the grandfather and the father with uh, felony custodial interference, and with the mom with um, a misdemeanor. They have not pled yet. They were in court today. It was mostly administrative. They've not pled anything yet. They have court dates down the road. So we'll hear from that. The lawyer for the mother says you have to wait until you hear all the information. So I, I think it's going to be a, a long, difficult, drawn out time. But I, I suspect there may be more ch- charges coming. And the parents, uh, you know, these were they were her, her biological parents. The parents, I think, will want to make their own case as well. Laura?
1: I'll be interested in hearing it. And But the great news, thank God, this girl is alive and safe. So many cases of missing children do not end this way. Miguel Marquez, thank you so much. We'll be right back. Hey, thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon tonight starts with who else? Don Lemon, right now.
3: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country.